my third conversation with Dennis McNally, we discuss his biography of Jack Kerouac, Desolate Angel, Jack Kerouac, The Beat Generation, and America. Over the course of this conversation, we discuss Kerouac's legacy for a generation of young people, the difficulty Jack had with being famous, whether you should read Kerouac after the age of 37, judging art by contemporary morals, and we take a listener question about Jerry Garcia and scuba diving. Desolate Angel is available where all fine books are sold, and this interview is part of a larger project that we're working on involving Jack Kerouac's later life. As always, thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And please make a donation if you like what you hear. Thanks. Hi, Laura. Hi. How are you, Dennis? I have no loud complaints. You know, it's a beautiful day, and yeah, things are going along. Yeah, it's I'm healthy. Beautiful, clear skies. It has been raining a lot, but that's what we need in Australia, so everybody is uh, happy about that, even though it's oh, a bit yeah. crappy. We don't complain it... about rain. What's that again? Sorry? We do not complain about rain here. Yeah. Anytime it's fit, you know, that's okay. Pretty much the same here. I mean, it's annoying on the day, but um, um, <laughs> in in the big scheme of things, it's, it means we have food, you know, so that's good. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Yep. Um... Actually, I was just going to start by asking you um, kind of a, like, how's it been in San Francisco with the protests and the, has it been pretty big there or is it just sort of? Uh, not as enormous as New York. I mean, it, it, they've been big, you know, it, it depends. The astonishing thing is that they, they've just gone on. I mean, it's like continued uh I haven't, I don't know about the last couple of days, but, I mean, two weeks is a very long time for people to continue to, you know, disrupt their lives and go out in the streets and, and, uh, and among other things, risk their health. Um, and it's, uh, I've been deeply impressed by, in particular, the younger people who are just saying, you know, enough is enough. Um, about uh, the system, systemic racism, and you know we have a black police chief, and uh, but we also have a a, a, a a police union that's basically a bunch of thugs, and uh, or at least their leadership is. Um, and, you know, I happen to be very pro-union, but I've dealt with civilian control. I'm a ACLU. Uh, volunteer and and spent a lot of time in police commission meetings, watching uh, the police line up and intimidate everybody, and with their shows of you know lots and lots of guys in uniform, and um, the the union police unions is fight for all the money you can get. I got no problem with any union doing that, but. But um, making sure that people aren't accountable for uh, killing people or violent abuse of people is just not what unions are supposed to be about. So, at any rate, uh, it has been it has been considerable here, um, not perhaps as intense as in other some other cities. It's certainly more intense in Oakland because uh, it's a, a much more significantly black city and. Uh, and it's had a history 
of a police department that is just clueless. Um, so yeah, that's that's part of our daily life. And how would it compare to say everybody in the news? And I think a lot of people compare it to 1968. How did how does it feel this year compared to 68? Does it feel different? Like you've already kind of mentioned, the kids seem to be more dedicated now than they were back then. I, I think the kids are even more dedicated, and I'm deeply, deeply impressed with them. Things were, uh, you know, the point is that we we are in a triple uh, a set of three whirlpools, as the way I pictured it the other day. We have a completely deranged president who is not in touch with anything like the reality that I call reality or that most of 60% of the America does. Um, so that sort of unhinges everything. I mean, Lyndon Johnson made terrible mistakes, but, you know, he was smart enough, among other things, not to run uh, because, you know, he knew, he knew when to throw in the towel that that would never, ever happen. Donald Trump, um, who simply refuses to see reality the way many other people do. Um, so that's A. B, the, the pandemic simply is the weirdest thing to happen in my lifetime. Um, and then on top of that, you get, so you have a 1918, I, I, I wrote a letter in which I said, you know, we, we, we had 1918, the, a reality version of the fictional 1984, and 1968. This has gone on longer. And for someone of my age, who frankly is, is totally disappointed in my generation and its fi- failure to follow through, I mean, I mean, I think we peaked with driving Nixon out of office. Um, we had an effect on ending the war. That's it. And then we went and indulged ourselves, or whatever. The point being that the, the progress that I had anticipated ever since Ronald Reagan's election has been downhill. So that, that the, the the fact is, there was a time when when I when change seemed not only possible but 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 imminent, and to have lost that has sort of disheartened me, frankly, politically, for my adult life. So that to see really young people. Is simply not being disheartened, uh, but going out there and risking uh, risking things. It you know, it makes me very very happy and very proud. And the, the remarkable thing, the most remarkable thing, is that a, a overwhelming majority of America has made has been able to see these demonstrations for what they are, which is nonviolent peaceful protesters. You know, with a fringe element, some of the professional thieves, the looters, and some of the some of the quite a lot of the violence done by by uh, right wingers who are you know simply trying to discredit, and they're making these distinctions where usually people just lump everything together and oh there's this violent these violent protests they're not you know most of the violence if anything comes from the police, which is almost always the case, but that's that's a, a distinction that's new uh, that that. Having a majority of people appreciate that's new. That's very new, and um, so yeah, I'm, it makes me hopeful. Uh, you know, as, if, as long as we can get through November, um, uh, you know, because I'm I'm moving to Australia uh, if uh, I, I jest, but I, I I don't know what I would will do if if he somehow manages 
to steal the election, or because I don't think he can win it on the on the fair and square. But that's a, you know, anyway. But let's talk about something other than politics. Yeah, please. yeah, yeah. No, I didn't. I didn't want to get into some. Um, uh, <laughs> politics. I, I was just curious because everybody hears everybody's been comparing '68 to, to now, and you know, you know, he has somebody with that lived experience as the the buzzword is now. That would be I wanted to hear yeah, about. No, that. It, it, the, 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 it's occurred to me too. You know, I certainly have felt it. I mean, for me, it, you know, it, it all went downhill from 68 because I, I truly, the last political figure that I absolutely, you know, lived, adored was Robert, Robert Kennedy. And, and uh, I, I've, I've never fallen in, it's, you know, one of the one love of my life, and I've never fallen in love with anybody since, politically. Yeah, what, what was he like? I've never, I don't know much about Robert Kennedy. We always hear about JFK and then... Um, the one thing I know about Robert Kennedy is that you know he was assassinated, and now people think that his assassin may have been brainwashed or some legs with that. But what was he like as a politician? That's not somebody that I grew up studying, I guess. The thing, the thing about Robert Kennedy was that um, he he started out as a as a young shark in a very bad way. I mean, he was a junior staff, very junior, very young, very fresh out of law school. Uh, for McCarthy, Joe McCarthy, uh, because his father was a very big uh, anti-communist. And he uh, went after, for instance, a legitimate target, namely the very corrupt Teamsters Union, but he absolutely went over the line with, uh, with his pursuit of them. There was a very, you know, hard-edged aspect to him. But what happened was that uh, in particular, after his brother was killed, um, he opened up emotionally with people like Cesar Chavez and Martin Luther King and developed a, a sensitivity towards uh, you know, mass poverty and mass political struggles that I don't think any other serious political candidate uh, well, I guess Bernie. Bernie, Bernie has ideologically would be there, but but emotionally was not. Um, that's one of the reasons why Joe Biden's the nominee. Bobby Kennedy had the Kennedy charisma, and the but was far more uh, sensitive to individual needs and rights than his brother. His brother was a cold warrior uh, and did some amazing stuff, but was still a cold warrior. Yeah, no, I just, I thought the world of Bobby and I, I, I basically sort of never quite, never quite, uh, you know, seen somebody that, that I totally bought that didn't have some obvious flaw. I mean, I, I think the world of Elizabeth Warren, except that, that, um, there's something a bit schoolmarmish about her. Uh, you know, she's, she's a Harvard professor. Um, I mean, at least Bobby only went there. He, <laughs> he didn't teach there. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I hope I'm making sense. But at any rate, uh, uh, he was, to me, one of the... I, I, I can't imagine what might have happened uh, if he had... Uh, he certainly would have beaten Nixon. I have no doubt um, and who knows? The war would have ended a hell of a lot faster 
And I think that things could have been different. Yeah, we haven't lived through yet is um, like that generation. You guys just had leaders assassinated. It seems like left, right, and center. And we haven't had that in my generation yet anyway. So let's hope. No, no. And I, I hope you are spared. Um, so I've been reading, I haven't finished quite yet, but I've been reading uh, Desolate Angel. I got that from the library here in a town called Toronto. It was a Toronto, Australia. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you knew that. And um, very good book. I'm enjoying it. And I guess I want to start Thank from you. the uh, beginning. Like, how were you introduced to Kerouac? And then maybe what? when did you know that you were going to write a whole book about him? Because it's a, it's a big book. Well, let's see. Let me hopefully give you very briefly the background. Uh, I read Kerouac in college on the road. You know, everybody reads on the Everybody should read on the road in college, I think. Was intrigued with the beats and sort of uh, intellectually the immediate forebears of, you know, I graduated high school in 1967. So it was a good year to graduate high school. Me and Bruce Springsteen. So again, you know, you have... Uh, there I am in the backwoods of Maine, and I'm reading Life magazine and seeing pictures of of the BN and uh, the whole hippie scene, so-called hippie scene, and San Francisco scene. And you know, it it seemed uh, the time uh, the time of youth, plus the war and and resisting the war. So anyway, um, I then went to college in way northern uh, New York State, so I, I wasn't exactly plugged into the what was happening because we were a long way away. And so I got to graduate school in the fall of 71. I kind of made it this, the, the discovery that, that graduate school was, was training and that um, I was just, it was kind of, it was a very sophisticated version of, of you know, the, the training that you'd get if you went to work at a McDonald's. It's, it, you weren't being asked, you were being asked to absorb a lot of information um, and, and learn certain procedures and I decided that what I wanted to do ordinarily is you spent four years studying, and then at the end of four years, you were kind of told what your doctoral dissertation would be about, which remarkably enough would turn out to be a chapter in your, in your senior professor's next book. But the deal was, that, you know, the implicit deal was that uh, you'd, you'd get to join the, the guild, the trade, you know, the trade union, which is, you know, college professors, and the uh, if you were smart and good, they, they would give you, they would make sure that you would get a job teaching, tenure track. I wasn't interested in that, for starters. I, I, I was fairly sure that I wasn't going to teach. Um, and having taught some uh, in graduate school, I concluded that I wasn't going to be a very good teacher and should do something else. But I also decided that what that the way to do the the way to make it all work, because I, I still wanted to learn this stuff was to um, choose a doctoral dissertation topic in advance, which was never done. Um, and that way, all this reading I would do would have some connection to a specific target at the end. One night, long story short, I was suggesting, you know, speaking out loud, thinking out loud, and was choosing doctoral dissertation topics. And I said, you know, maybe I'd do the beats. That would be interesting. Now, the beats, among other things, most graduate schools would not have even accepted such a topic because in 1972 this was, uh, the, you know, the beats scene had been over, you know, I mean, Kerouac had died only three years before. It was all very recent, and, and 
that's not the kind of thing that dissertations, you know, was supposed to be about. Um, and the, my friend uh, said, you should do Jack Kerouac. His papers are at Columbia, and you can stay with my friends in the Bronx. Now, being broke, because all graduate students pretty much are, are broke, um, I suddenly, you know, the, the idea that I had a free place to stay in New York to do research from, that actually, you know, meant something. Plus, um, coincidentally or not, as, as depending on how you look at these things, uh, my parents had moved uh, while I was in college uh, to uh, a town that was only 10 miles away from Lowell, where Kerouac was from. So suddenly, you know, the universe seemed to be saying, hmm. So I went to the library and I looked and there were no biographies at that moment. There were no biographies of Jack Kerouac. And I wanted from the beginning to do a, a book that wasn't just an academic book from an academic press, but, you know, a, a regular New York City press. So uh, in the summer of 72, I started serious research. And by the end of the summer, I was confident that, you know, this was, it was a great topic. Nobody had done it. And then the next year, somebody put out the first biography, and I, I read it very nervous, frankly, thinking, oh, God, you know, I've done all this work, and now somebody's going to have done a great job, and I'm just going to have nothing to say and, you know, have to start over. And then I read it and said, no, I think I can do this. something very different from this and also better, or at least from my point of view. Because what I wanted to do was what they used to call the Life and Times biography, the principle being that um, if, you, if you have enough information, if you tell the story of any given person, you can tell the story of their times um, through their life. Uh, and Kerouac was, by and large, as a as a writer, was a, a diarist. He he, you know, his his writing was all based on his life and the influences in his life. And uh, I, you know, I I thought that he would be a, a great model for telling. Um, you know, the story of what happened in America in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And also, he did something very, very brave uh, and very remarkable. And that is, um, you know, he published his first first book, which was a conventional novel. It was a novel novel. Then, over the next year, it, because he was dissatisfied with it, it was very very much Thomas Wolfe. Um, and, but he was dissatisfied, and he through various um, um, influences, including a, a long letter that his friend Neil Cassidy wrote him and it, the life experiences of driving around the country with Neil and uh, the, um, uh, the experience of listening to jazz, just for the highlights, uh, he developed a style that was across, you know, over the, uh, on the other side of the moon from the style of, of The Town of the City was the first book which came out in 1950. And by 1952, he had written On the Road, which at the time, it seemed really unlikely that it would ever be published. Uh, and in other words, he was writing stuff that he was fairly sure would never be published. And he kept writing, and it, which is basically suicide. And he was committing, you know, sort of uh, writer's suicide. The idea that you're going to write something that will never be published is a little mind-boggling. And he did it, and it, because he felt he had to follow his own uh, artistic path. As I say, I think that's very noble and very brave, and that's what I wanted to explore. So I wanted to explore the historical context of Kerouac, and 
you know, why he chose to make this sacrifice. Because, in fact, when he finally did sell it, it was a remarkable. He was remarkably lucky that uh, he ran into just the right person, namely Malcolm Cowley, who managed to get it accepted at uh, at Viking. And then a really funny story, which was that by a reviewer for the New York Times, at a time when you know the person who reviewed it in the New York Times was God to the literary world, um, and had in it just a stunning amount of power. And at that time, his name was Orville Pris, uh, Prescott, commonly nicknamed Prissy, which is to say, if he'd reviewed on the road, he would have crucified it. But in fact, he was on vacation. And a man named Gil Milstein had been heard about the, this concept of the beat generation. Back, it was a, there was a novel by a guy named John Holmes uh, called uh, Go, which came out in 52. And... Um, it talked about it, and as a matter of fact, even in 52, he was an editor at the Times, and he got uh, Holmes to write a piece called This Is to Be Generation, where he explains the term. So when he saw that On the Road was, you know, had been published, he grabbed it off the pile and said, I'll review it, and gave it the review of a lifetime. He called it, compared it to, to The Sun Also Rises as a generational document, and the book's been selling ever since. But that was just pure luck that Prescott was on vacation. And it was pure luck that I found Milstein. I, I, I was watching television one day and uh, suddenly, was I don't know why, I was reading the credits to the, the TV news, and I forget which channel it was, but one of the network, I think it was ABC, but I suddenly see Gilbert Milstein. I thought, it has to be him. So I immediately called you know, the network and said, you know, give me the news, and I got through to him, you know, in, in minutes. Um, and he said, sure, you know, come on down, I'll talk to you. And so I got this story, and I was the first person to get this story. Nobody, you know, nobody's ever written that up. Um, so that, you know, so that's that's my Kerouac story. Hmm. You kind of led into the next question I had, because, um, you know, like I said, I haven't read the whole book, but you have a lot of pretty in-depth research. How, how does one go about researching, like, for a biography, for a person's life? Because you have a lot of intimate moments with Jack and his friends. Like, how did you find this information? Well, um, I, you know, I, I, went, I went and got all the books of his that I could, read them all. And as I say, they're, 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 they're all diaristic. They're all about him. They're slightly changed also. It's very risky business. You have to be very careful about what you, what you assume is real the, out, the, the outlines you can assume are real, but, you know, specifics, you know, he changed things. Um, and so, but I did that. And then I interviewed interviewed all of the, you know, all the people I could dig up uh, that, uh, that had been close to him. Um, and that, you know, this went on for over the course of, I don't know, five or six years. I did a lot of popular cultural research literally by reading Life magazine, which was sort of a, very accurate barometer for what was going on in America at that time on a lowest common denominator level, which is to say, if it made it to the to life, everybody knew about it. It was, a, you know, it was sort of a universal experience. I uh, went to, uh, my friend had said that his papers were at Columbia, which was partly true, uh, but in the end I went to 11 university archives and... Uh, uh, except I didn't have to go to Chicago. God bless them. They, 
they Xeroxed everything for 50 cents a page. They or whatever it was that I paid, they they Xeroxed everything and mailed it to me, and I didn't I didn't have to go there. So, but the answer is, um, I I jokingly said that I read old magazines, Life, I gossiped, that is to say, I interviewed people, and I read other people's mail. That's what being at a university archives is about, and that's how I researched it. Sounds like a good way to be. Um, uh, I was going to ask you another question because, like, I'm like a lot of people. I've I have my still have my copy of On the Road. I read you know twenty years ago. It's not a special copy. I bought it from a bookstore and I still have it. It's all crinkled up. It's been overseas with me. Um, even Dharma Bums actually had more of an impact on me. And a couple years ago, my wife mm-hmm. and me uh, worked in Alaska. We I fished for a summer and then we climbed a mountain after my fishing expedition and I said to her well I've accomplished my Kerouac dream I did it you know I've spent the summer out in the wild and what do you think that he captured about the American spirit because I feel that connection and I know that I mean I'm not alone there's millions of other people who feel that uh, what what did he capture you think well uh, he captured a lot of things but remember um, he was you know he was the son of immigrants his first language was not English. He 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 cherished America um, and American freedom. And although he was politically conservative, he he cherished the big country that America is um, and the beautiful country that that it is. I have said many times, and and it's very obvious right now. There's sort of Freedom is a very important word in America, but uh, it's always been, it's always had two meanings. Um, there is the uh, uh, sort of right-wing meaning, which is largely, it's the freedom to make as much money as you possibly can. And, you know, it's that's been a striking success, obviously. Uh, America has been, by and large, uh, this economic uh, powerhouse and and uh, scene of endless you know, success stories, as well as endless failures. But, but you know, it's the success stories that largely get talked about. And then there's the left. Is, to put it a little too reductionist, but the left wing version of that, which is there's freedom of thought, freedom of religion, freedom of association, uh, and it, because you know you start you start with some handicaps when you're in America. You start with slavery for starters. Okay. America's original sin. So uh, there has been a, a left-wing uh, or a liber- you know, a truly liberal in the most profound philosophical sense uh, interpretation of freedom uh, that I associate, uh, for instance, with uh, most particularly with, with Thoreau, um, who rejected the contemporary ideas of American exceptionalism that only America could ever be great um, and that that you know because he had he was fighting slavery. I mean he was a participant in the Underground Railroad, and that's you know so you can't uh, you can't you know sit there and say oh America's playing great you know when you have to acknowledge uh, slavery. But he, uh, he rejected uh, you know the Protestant work ethic and said you know the idea that you know you should live to make more and more money. Which is basically the root of the work ethic um, is absurd. You know, I mean, life is for for learning and for loving, and well, loving was not strong on his uh, list 
he was a good, proper Victorian, alas and alack. I associated him with a, a very much a bohemian tradition of iconoclasm, but the fact is um, he, he was not at all bohemian. Uh, his, his actual lifestyle was, was austere to, to an extreme. And I might add, uh, I, and I'm very involved with Zen Buddhism, and, and uh, we, I've talked with very serious scholars, and we agree that in a popular cultural sense, the Dharma Bums really is an important Dharma, Dharma document as, as, in terms of encouraging people, young people in particular, to study the Dharma in America. And that it, he doesn't get everything right, and his, his idea of Buddhism is deeply, um, deeply colored by his Roman Catholic background. He sort of just transferred Roman Catholic saints and, and adopted some, some Buddhist ones um, in a lot of ways. Um, I had a wonderful conversation with Philip Whalen, who is uh, very much a character uh, in the Dharma Bums. and didn't exactly make fun, but dismissed a lot of uh, Jack's understanding of of, uh, of uh, Zen in particular, because he was a very sentimental guy, and Zen, Zen is not sentimental. Um, and he he um, the fact is that that. He and he tended to romanticize things, but the fact is that uh, he introduced some concepts and some language to uh, to the American public through Dharmaums, looking at it historically and the evolution of of uh, American thought about Buddhism uh, or the development of Buddhism in America. Um, you know, it's an important document. So there you go. Yeah, and. Um, I- I've only, you know, the first, you know, 100 pages of the book. I, one thing about Kerouac, I didn't realize he was so Catholic. I knew he had a Catholic influence, his writing and his, his family influences writing. But um, he talked about a social conservatism, like that also kind of displays itself towards the end of its life. And in some of his later books where he seems to be sort of, I wouldn't say anti-hippie, but kind of very critical of uh, the hippie generation. And why do you think that was? How did that come about? Is, or is that just part of getting older? He was always... Remember, he was, he was an immigrant, and uh, insofar as he thought about politics, which wasn't very much, he was always fairly uh, uh, conservative. But that's not what he thought about. What he mostly thought about was things like jazz and art and music and improvisation and combining them and pursuing them. Um, and, you know, what happened, of course, in his life was that there are very few people uh, ever who could be less prepared to be famous than Kerouac. He was uh, insecure uh, in many ways. Uh, he had spent too many years in, in abject poverty. Uh, he had a fundamental, complicated, uh, and, and strangling relationship with his mother. And... Uh, to suddenly be in a position in which you're famous. Um, I have, fortunately for me, tasted that in that. In the world of the Grateful Dead scene, there's lots and lots of people who know who I am that I don't know who they are, which is my definition of fame. And fortunately for me, I can objectively say, I'm not famous. I happen to be the closest thing, uh, the only person that, that some guy comes up to me and, and 
says, oh, thank you for what you do for the, for the band. And, and I go, you're welcome. But the point is, if he's excited, and occasionally that's happened, um, and treats me as though I'm famous, it's not me that he's doing that to. It's the fact that I worked for and knew Jerry Garcia. It's Jerry that's famous. And I, I'm very clear on the distinction, right? I am not, you know, it's not me, it's him. Um, and I was excited when I met him, too. So, you know, I can understand that. Um, so uh, the point is that when you're famous, people make assumptions about who you are and and what you can do for them or, you know, why they should hang out with you or whatever. Um, and most and many of those assumptions are false. Uh, and Kerouac uh, was simply not ready to make those distinctions um, about uh, that people were glomming onto him because of you know some some false notion that they had. Uh, it, he just knew that he couldn't stand it, um, and that in the way he dealt with things that he couldn't stand was to find a body a bottle of Johnny Walker scotch and start drinking and um, you know he had uh, always had a drinking problem but uh, you know it was wine because that's the best he could afford um, in the 40s and 50s unfortunately in the 60s he could he could afford Johnny Walker and he drank himself to death and that's that's you know a sad part of the story too and in that period um, he would uh, it, sometimes talk about politics and people would, oh, oh, my God, he's revert, you know, he's he's gone right wing. Well, no, he was always that way. He just didn't really talk about it before. Um, and and again, that's part of fame. People, you know, make assumptions. Oh, well, he's young and he's handsome and he's traveling around the country. He must be left wing. Why? You know, that's 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 definitely an assumption that uh, it's an over assumption. Yeah. Um... I remember uh, there's some some of the books I read about the Grateful Dead. Jerry said something along the lines of, um, "I would like to. I wish Neil Cassidy had lived so he could he could comment on what we've become. You know, kind of comment on the whole scene, the whole behemoth that the Grateful Dead became. But what do you think Kerouac would make of America now if he was still here, or or through the you know the 50, 60 years since he's passed away? Well, God, I. I, I... It's so bizarre, I don't even know. I mean, I, um, he was not, if he was a racist by contemporary standards, it was because he romanticized black life. And a lot of black people would have, you know, gone, what are you, you know, when he talks about, there are times when he talks about uh, black life and they'd, 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 slap, they'd slap him verbally for, for making you know, these romantic assumptions. But the fact is that uh, he was also extremely uh, uh, wanted to honor life and, and the, 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 you know, the, the murder of, of, of black men, uh, the, the almost weekly murder of black men in America, you know, would have shocked, I'm sure, and, and, and just broken his heart. And he wanted to honor black, you know, things, black culture, for instance, jazz, um, in a way that uh, clearly uh, the right wing does now. So he, you know, he might be rather con confused by some of this stuff. I think 
that he would have been, uh, again, he's not very political, but he would have been very proud that young white people um, would stand up and say, no, this, 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 this systemic racism simply has to stop. And what do you make now? Because it's kind of like I've noticed like when I was doing some research for today and, and there's kind of a revisionist thing now. There's a lot of people who like kind of really criticize Kerouac these days about saying no, he was sexist and, you know, kind of holding people to a pastime to today's standards. And there was a quote from an author who said, you know, I um, you should never make the mistake of rereading Kerouac after the age of 37. I think that was generally the quote. Um, what would you make of, of these sort of criticisms? And do you think there's any truth to that, that Kerouac, you should read it? while you're in college or late high school? There is, you know, Kerouac is very uneven. So, yes, there's stuff in there that you read now and you cringe. There's a line in On the Road about wanting to be a Negro, you know, like that that, that was so wonderful. And, and, and that's embarrassing. Um, I think that um, Mexico City Blues is a masterpiece of American poetry. And uh, you can read it at 90. Uh, I think that there are aspects of Dr. Sachs uh, that, that are classic. Uh, and I think that there are parts, not all, uh, but parts of, uh, of uh, Visions of Cody that is great writing. And it's astonishing writing. Yes, there's the social aspect of breaking free from uh, the strictures of society that's a large part of On the Road, um, that's pretty much for the young. You know, that's, that's when somebody, when, when that's an appealing and, and, and a very good thought. And, and uh, it, certainly, it certainly had its impact in the 50s. Uh, we would not be where we are today without it. Uh, but, and, and it's still... To this day, uh, a, a good thing um, for people, um, I mean, you have to appreciate that on the road took place on two-lane highways, you know? It was, it was an America that, that was before the freeway and before chain motels and chain fast food joints and, and that driving from Los a from New York to, to San Francisco on I-80 was, I've done it more times than I want to because it was convenient. And um, I've, I frequently compared it to uh, you enter a tunnel at one end and you come out of the tunnel at the other. And, and with a couple of minor exceptions, um, there's, you know, you, you're, there's just a very sharp limit to what you're experiencing. Um, uh, so the the whole experience is different, but still, uh, you know, Kara, I, I I would not. Uh, I understand. Kerouac was romantic and sensitive, and that makes um, and, and he used a lot of slang, and that makes you so vulnerable. So it's so easy to make fun of him. It's so easy to make fun of the hippies. Uh, you know, time did it during their lives when it was happening. And, you know, post-cultural commentators now, yes, he was sexist. 
was there any man in America that wasn't in the 50s? I mean, to take, you know, to, to complain about, for instance, sexism, um, you observe it, yes. But, you know, to dismiss somebody, uh, you know, for life, whatever, but to make a, a, a crushing and final judgment that, you know, because they're, uh, uh, they're sexist is, um, well, it's, I think it's poor thinking, you know, because it's, it's, it doesn't acknowledge history. Uh, it doesn't acknowledge chronology. Um, and it's, it's anachronistic. And part of anachronism is not merely um, something that's, you know, too old to be appropriate now, but it's about simply being out of time. And, and the anachronistic fallacy is, you know, is so common now with all these young lefty... The, the problem with cultural criticism, a great deal of cultural criticism, at least, in the academic and in public intellectual worlds of present day, is that there's a, that there's a template that's been uh, erected, and among other things, that's anti-racist, Okay, I'm all for being anti-racist uh, and anti-sexist and so forth and so on. We, we've we've reached a, a, a level of ideology that that, um, that you know is is clear on these points and and you know three cheers for that. However, um, to to make you know dismissive judgments, um, you know. These people go into their studies with this template first, instead of researching and finding and and drawing your conclusions from the from the research. They're applying the conclusions they've already drawn to the research, uh, and I think that's bad history. Um, and you know, it, it, again, it's anachronistic. It's it's out of time. We have to, uh, you know, there's no question um, th that you need to discuss uh, his ambivalence uh, sexually, his inability to, to commit. To, you can talk about a dozen things, and, and they need to be acknowledged. Um, but um, to, to draw a priori conclusions... Uh, uh, you know, before in effect, before you even start researching, um, it's it's not to me. It's not healthy. Mm, I kind of yeah, I kind of agree with you on that. I think that it's just hard to hold people to different standards. You know, um, it's uh, the world's. Uh, and I always say this when you travel a lot and you've been around the world, and, and the world's very gray. It's not black and white, and you'll see you'll see a lot of complicated things as you go through it. You know, yeah, I'd say it's really colorful, but. Gray has this wrong imputation, but I take your point. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe I'll, I'll change it. Actually, that sounds better. Colorful sounds better than gray. gray sounds, <laughs> I agree. I agree. Um, I'm very conscious of the time. We've been going for about 45 minutes, so I just have uh, one more question for you. And this actually comes from um, a bit of a throw you curveball. Um, I'm part of several like, Grateful Dead, you know, groups on whatever Reddit, Facebook, Australian-based ones. And I kind of put it out there for a question to ask you. And um, somebody put this uh -huh. one up. And I thought this was interesting because I hadn't thought of this before. And basically the question was, mm -hmm. Jerry really enjoyed scuba diving in Hawaii. Um, and so maybe just it's kind of a general question, like where did he go? Is 
what did he enjoy about it? And is there any sort of place you can go where they, you know, have a little, I don't know, he didn't say exactly a plaque or memorabilia about Jerry being there? Like, what was what were his trips to Hawaii kind of like? Well, I wasn't along on them, but I'll tell you what I know about them, which is, well, first, what he enjoyed about it um, was uh, a couple things. Um, one is, uh, it's very beautiful. Um, uh, the other was, um, nobody can ask you for an autograph at 30 feet below. Um, and there was, there was a, there's an emotional privacy to it that was something he couldn't experience. I mean, you know, he could not go out to a museum, for instance, and he loved art and it was quite knowledgeable about it. Um, the coolest thing I ever did for the Grateful Dead was to arrange, um, an hour alone with a uh, traveling Monet exhibit, a really, really good one, big time uh, Monet uh, thing at the Chicago Art Institute. Uh, they had come from from France, obviously. Um, and it was like, there were like 10 subjects, a haystack, um, certain road, uh, the bridge in his garden, the Villa Lipan, and there were like 10 or seven or eight versions of each one of these, varying as to time of day or time of year or whatever. Uh, this is a very cool show. You know, it's Monet, for God's sake. And um, uh, the point being that, that uh, I asked, and they were more than happy to, to uh, open it, the, the, the place close at 5, and we had it from 5 to 6. And it was all we had to do was sign out at the end. I didn't, obviously, um, and he was more than happy to do that. And so to have an hour where it was just people he knew um, and able to look at this wonderful art and not worry, you know, not be aware that somebody was inevitably going to come up and say, "Hey, Jerry," you know, it's just okay. So that was part of being underwater. Um, the uh, uh, I think, though we never talked about it, I think that um, as he grew, uh, there's this physical freedom of, uh, you know, he's a very good swimmer, uh, but the point is that when you're overweight and then you're underwater, you're not overweight anymore exactly. You're, you're, you're physically free in a way that, uh, you know, is just extraordinary. Uh, not that I scuba dived, but, you know, this is what I have been told by many people who have. Um, and as far as where, uh, his main uh, place was uh, uh, on the big island called Kailua Kona, which is, um, and there was, a, he got introduced to uh, a guy with a boat there who was, uh, you know, very agreeable, and um, so he'd go out with that guy, and uh, Various people in the Grateful Dead scene that would occasionally accompany him. But uh, as far as I know, I, I don't think he ever like got to the Caribbean or uh, went into any, any place that was much more uh, exotic than that. Uh, it was uh, mostly it was Hawaii. And it was just, you know, Hawaii is pretty close to paradise. And, and uh, it was just a good place to relax and not be, not be part of the circus. 
Yeah, well, you know, as you get older too, especially you know, if you find paradise and you know where it is, you don't have to go anywhere else. You know, I understand that. Uh, you know, it, it certainly worked for him. I, I, I will never forget the first. I guess it was the first time he went, and he came back. He was uh, playing a concert, and he was, he was just you know tanned and relaxed, and and Bill Graham. I happened to be standing next to Bill Graham at the side of the stage, and. Bill was just like his jaw dropped, and it was just like how you know how and so he was so happy. He so loved Jerry, and and uh, instead of looking worn and tired and whatnot, he you know he just he was in the paint, and uh, and uh, Bill was just like you know what? And I said you know that's what what uh, three weeks in Hawaii underwater will do for you. And he just he was you know, just ecstatic about it. Yeah, no, that's a good story because uh, the Grateful Dead is always great music to camp to or go hiking to or anything like that. And you, and you realize the band has to play it. They're in the stadium while you're out camping. So it's good to hear that he was able to gout a little bit and um, enjoy himself. But yeah, now that was his that was his big um, his big uh, uh, release. Uh, Kreutzmann uh, turned him on to scuba. Uh, Kreutzmann had started living in Hawaii, had bought some uh, bought a house in Hawaii was going there regularly and got Jerry to go and it uh, it, it did him a world of good yeah. well um, like I said I'm conscious of the time it's been almost an hour I do appreciate your time Dennis and um, if you do decide to migrate to Australia definitely hit me up I can help you out and, uh, <laughs> I, I thought it was I, starting well, a business really, right counsel people to uh, how, you, how to migrate you'll certainly know about it alright no worries um, yeah okay. but I'll hit you up again okay. soon and uh, appreciate the time Feel free anytime. I, you know, um, I, I, as long as it's a reasonable sized chunks like this, uh, you know, you can have me when you want me. All right, excellent. Thanks a lot, Dennis. You're very welcome. You take care. All right, you too.